haven't met you, I am one of the pastors here at Salem, specifically the Connections uh, pastor. I get the privilege of sharing today, which quite honestly, uh, if you know any of my story, up until I was about 30 years old, I was absolutely terrified of public speaking. And so, uh, I believe that God transforms lives, and we're going to talk about that today, and that God enables us to do things uh, that we otherwise could never do on our own. So I want to start with this, this statement. It's a statement that I've heard made on several occasions, and I do not know the source of it. I tried to Google it, but I couldn't figure it out. But it's this, God cares less about what you are doing and more about who you are becoming. God cares less about what you're doing and more about who you're becoming. As you think about the last month, as you think about the last year, as you think about the last decade, who are you becoming? Are you becoming more irritable or more judgmental or more bitter or more anxious in this season or more stingy or more cynical or more angry or more isolated or perhaps you've become more guarded, or maybe more mad, or, or are you becoming more patient, more kind, more optimistic, more peaceful, more connected with others, more gentle, more trusting, more compassionate, more generous, more loving? You know, for those of us that call ourselves Christ followers, one of the primary goals on our journey with Jesus is to be transformed into Christ-likeness, to allow Him and invite Him to change the way we think, the way we act. And so what I want to invite you to do right now for the next 30 seconds or so, uh, if you got a bulletin on your way in, and even if you didn't, you can participate in this, it asks the question, who are you becoming at the top of your notes? I want to give you 30 seconds just to think back on the past month, the past year, the past decade, and maybe just write down a few words of who you feel like you are becoming. So go ahead and take a few moments. All right. Uh, you know, as I think about that question and think about myself, there are times when I'm more cynical. There are times when I'm more angry. But if I look at the scope of the years that God, I've been following Jesus, like God has transformed my heart and mind in incredible ways. And so a couple of questions. What has kept you from becoming more Christ-like? And the second question is this. What has helped you become more Christ-like? So here's a few Bible passages I want to share with you before we get into the meat of this message, uh, but they're both about how God transforms lives. The first is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes this. It's up on the screen. Uh, 
And he starts by saying, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And when we think about it, like we are constantly being conformed to the pattern of this world. We hear uh, messages in media. We hear messages from our friends. We hear messages at school, in our workplace. We hear messages on social media. And there's this constant tension of being pulled towards the pattern of this world. And yet, Paul challenges us, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and a prove what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. It all starts with the renewing of the mind. I like to say the phrase, think about what you're thinking about. Think about the things that are going into your mind on a regular basis, what you are feeding your mind. Let me ask this, are you inviting the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts? Are you asking God to determine your value? Are are you asking the Holy Spirit to direct your pathways? Then Colossians 3, 1 and 2, another great passage on this whole concept of being transformed. Uh, Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. Uh, The Christian walk, the spiritual journey, is about setting our hearts and minds on things above. As we focus our mind on things above, our patience grows, our hope flourishes, our love expands, our trust increases. And at Salem, uh, we believe that we can grow in our discipleship to Jesus that we can be transformed into Christ-likeness. And it happens by practicing rhythms, which we talk about here, through living out our mission, which is to live lives of love with God on mission, or in community and on mission, to live lives of love. Well, whatever, it didn't come up, sorry. But our mission is living lives of love with God in community and on mission. And so it's about... Spending time with God in His Word, uh, praying to God, uh, journaling about who He is and what He wants to do in our lives. It's about being in community, in community with other followers of Christ that are spurring you on, that are encouraging you in your walk. And it's about living out this mission of sharing Christ's love wherever we work, live, or play. And we use the imagery here of cave, table, and road. So if you're new to our church, when we talk about the cave, we're talking about that alone time with God. We're talking about when we set aside time to be with God, to pray to Him, to ask Him for direction, to read His Word and allow His Spirit to convict us and change us and grow us and encourage us. It could be journaling. It could be worshiping. And then when we talk about the table, we're talking about gathering with other people who are also following Christ. You know, when the people of God get together to talk about the things of God, like it does something, we learn from each other's experiences. And then the road is simply living this thing out. As God transforms me, how am I impacting the world for Jesus and His mission? And we believe that if we neglect any of these, our growth becomes unbalanced. And and each of these requires commitment. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but my background is in sales. So I've been a uh, pastor for about the last 16 years. But prior to that, I spent most of my career in some form of sales. And as a salesman, I 
frequently focused on the features and benefits of a product. Do you know what I mean? What you get out of what you buy, right? And so we would talk about WIFMs, what's in it for me. And quite honestly, I frequently go back to those same things when I'm talking about Jesus. I go to, into like, what's so great about Jesus? What's so great about having a relationship with him? What's so great about his forgiveness? What's so great about his love? What's so great about his guidance? Which are all more than enough reasons to follow Jesus. Uh, but discipleship isn't just a dip your toe in the shallow end of the pool type of commitment. It's more of stepping off the edge of a high dive and plunging into the water, right? When we step, when we get to the edge of a high dive and we look over, like our heart starts to race a little bit. We know the moment we step, we can't come back, right? We've made a commitment. And quite honestly, there's going to be some adrenaline and some fun. There also could be a little bit of pain on how, based on how you impact that water, right? And so following Jesus is like that. It's like diving into the deep end. It takes commitment and there's some risk. And there will be some pain in it. And this relationship is a get and give relationship. Like there are incredible things that I get from this relationship. But God calls me to far more than that. He calls me to give, to give of myself. And so where I want to start, if you've got a Bible or your Bible app, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Verse 23 and 20 through 27. I'm going to read these through, talk a little bit about them, and I will come back to these passages a little bit uh, further along in this message. But in this passage, Jesus shares with Peter and the apostles the nature of the cost and commitment to follow him. Here's what he says. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. These are pretty sobering words, pretty challenging words. As a matter of fact, when Seth first asked me to speak on this passage, you want to know what I thought? I thought, uh-uh. No thanks, I don't really want to talk about this. I'm not quite sure what I'd say. I'm not even quite sure I completely get this. There's so much happening here. I didn't say that out loud. That was just going on in my mind. So here I stand in front of you. It's good to be stretched, right? So Jesus, Jesus is basically calling us to give our allegiance to Him instead of the world. This starts with a Christ-born love for Jesus, which leads to us thinking and acting differently. But there's also a sacrificial aspect to serving Jesus, to loving Jesus, to following Jesus, to serving Jesus and others. And frequently, it helps me to think of this relationship in terms of my marriage or my family, like my brothers or sisters or my siblings or even a good friend. You know, when I think about my wife and kids... I love them dearly. My, uh, my love for them has grown over the years. 
but my love for them has also required some sacrifice. Uh, Sometimes we don't eat what I want to eat at my house. Sometimes we don't do what I want to do at my house. Sometimes we don't watch the movie I'd prefer to watch. Sometimes instead of spending money on myself, it goes towards savings or towards investing in them and their future. And I don't do that begrudgingly. I do that because I love them, because I want to serve them. And the same sort of thing happens in our relationship with Jesus. The more we get to know him, the more we understand his ways, we also start to learn how good his ways are, that his ways are the best ways. And so as I was thinking about a life in the Bible that's been transformed, someone who became like Jesus by spending time with Jesus, I got to thinking about the Apostle Peter. Quite honestly, there's probably no greater example. We have lots of information on how Peter lived his life. Now, Peter experienced these rhythms of cave, table, and road firsthand. He spent time with Jesus in prayer. He gathered around the table with the 12, as well as many others. He gathered around the table with uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and sinners and tax collectors, people that would challenge Jesus and people that would praise Jesus. And all the time, he's learning while he's gathered around that table. And then, of course, he was on the road with Jesus, seeking and saving the lost, the sick, those who need a doctor. So here's a little bit about Peter's story. Sometimes I assume people know uh, far more about Peter than maybe they do, but Peter was a fisherman, for those of you that don't know, and initially his name was not Peter, it was Simon. That was his given name by his parents. And one day, uh, you'll see in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Peter, or Jesus sees both Peter or Simon and Andrew on the shoreline fishing, and he says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. One of the older versions says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Peter responds in that moment, and he drops his net, and he starts to follow Jesus. So as we take a look at Peter's life and his transformation, he he transformed from what I would call a passionate impetuous and bold follower to a transformed and yet still bold and loving leader while still following Jesus. Uh, In the course of Peter's life, he would become one of Jesus' three closest friends. Frequently, we read about Peter, James, and John. They all together were frequently uh, together in the Bible in different uh, passages doing life together. Jesus gave Peter, whose name was Simon, he gave him the name Cephas or Cephas, which was an Aramaic name, and it meant Peter or rock. It meant stone is what it meant. And I would guess, if you know Peter's personality, that when Jesus gave him the name rock, Peter's probably like, you nailed it, Lord. You got it right, because that's exactly who I am. But as we look at Peter's life, we'll see that Peter was hardly a rock, maybe more like a rolling stone as he goes in and out of life's crisis and excitement. Now, Peter, he he witnessed Jesus doing miracle after miracle. He would have been there when Jesus turned water into wine. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with two uh, fish and five loaves. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw him cripple or or, uh, heal a paralyzed man. He saw mad people become calm as, as Jesus cast out demons. Peter was witness to all of that. And then Peter also absorbed so much of Jesus' teaching. 
right? He was there during the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus spoke to, to thousands. He was there on many occasions when Jesus spoke to large gatherings, but he was also there to see Jesus dialogue one-on-one with people, to hear the questions that Jesus would ask, to see how he would respond and react. And all the while, Peter's being transformed. He's becoming like Christ. He's learning and learning and learning. He was gathered around many a table for meals with James and John and Jesus and the other 12 and lots of other folks. Peter was impulsive and brash. You know, there was a moment, not a moment, but there's, there's this passage that talks about uh, one night, uh, Jesus had been praying. He tells the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. It's a massive lake. And so they take off that evening, and all the disciples are in the boat, but Jesus said, I'm going to meet you on the other side. It's the middle of the night. The winds are buffeting. It's dark. They're fearful that they're going to capsize. And all of a sudden, they see this person walking on the water towards them, and they think it's a ghost. They're just terrified. But as he gets closer, they recognize that it's their Lord, that it's their Savior, that it's Jesus. And Peter, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if you want me to, tell me to come out there and walk on the water with you. And so Jesus says, come on. And Peter climbs over the edge of the boat into this storm and starts walking on water. And if you know the story a little bit later, not very long, he starts seeing all the waves and he starts to sink and he's terrified and Jesus grabs his hand, drags him to the boat. But again, brash, impulsive, like Peter was the only one that stepped in the water, right? Something else Peter did was he declared Jesus as Lord. Uh, Luke 9, 18 through 20, we'll show it up here on the screen. So this is just before that passage I read a little bit earlier. Uh, Note this, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, so here we see Jesus in the cave, right? He's praying, but he's invited his disciples into this rhythm, and they're praying alongside them. And he pauses and he asks them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And Jesus says, but but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. As some versions say, God's Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew term. Christ is a Greek term, and they both both mean anointed one. So Peter answers, God's anointed one. So he declares that Jesus is Lord. And then Peter, though, also he he viewed Jesus wrongly on a number of occasions. He thought that, that Jesus would be an earthly ruler, that he would overthrow Rome, that he would be a king that had an earthly reign and put the Jewish people back on top. Peter actually had the nerve to rebuke Jesus. You know, Jesus would, uh, on a couple occasions, predicted his own death, said that the Son of Man's going to have to suffer and go to a cross and die. And Peter says, never, Lord. It's like he rebukes Jesus. That's actually what the text says. He rebukes him. And then what happens? Peter rebukes Jesus and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because he knew that that wasn't his purpose. That wasn't why he was here. 
And so Peter's like up and down, up and down, up and down. Thinks he's got it all figured out. Then he's not so sure he's got it figured out. Peter got to witness the transfiguration on top of the mountain with Elijah and Moses when uh, Jesus became like glowing white and his robes became glowing. And then on the night that Jesus was arrested, a bunch of soldiers come to arrest him. Peter pulls out a sword and lops off the ear of one of the soldiers. I mean, this guy just... He'd just do anything for his Lord. And that same night, he said, Lord, I love you and I will go to the grave with you and I will never deny you. Yet as most of you know, just a couple hours later, he cowered when confronted by a young girl and consequently did deny Jesus three times. And I'm guessing he spent days in shame. Well, he was later restored and forgiven along a, sh- a shoreline over a meal of fish as, as Jesus forgave him. Uh, a little bit later, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, it was Peter who gathered the troops in the upper room, the remaining disciples, and they prayed, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Peter would go on to lead the early church, to be its initial leader. He would do miracles on his own, well, not on, with, through the power of God, healing people. He would profess things. He would help the early church navigate uh, through the requirements of Judaism versus Christianity. He learned from his own misunderstandings and prejudices, and he broke down religious divides with the Gentiles. And every step of the way through success and failure, Peter was becoming more and more like Christ. He spent time in the cave with Jesus. He spent time around the table with Jesus and the disciples, and he was constantly on the road with him, witnessing miracles, absorbing teaching, engaging with the outcasts and lepers and sinners, caring for the impoverished, and he was transformed. He was becoming more and more like Christ. And I never realized this before just studying this the last couple of weeks, but the very first words that we read back there in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, that Jesus spoke to Peter were, come follow me, right? And I'll make you fishers of men. But it was pointed out in my Bible that the last words that Jesus ever spoke directly to Peter found in uh, John chapter 21, Verse 22, right after he's restored him on the shoreline, he says, as for you, follow me. The beginning of his ministry, follow me, and at the end of his ministry, follow me. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter would follow Jesus all the days of his life until his death. And Jesus invited Peter into rhythms of being with God in prayer, in worship, of of being with people and being on the road and serving people. And it all began and ended with follow me. So how do we have a transformed life? How do we become like Jesus? We follow. We follow Jesus. So I want to return uh, to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Here again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's as if 
Jesus is giving a description of a disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself, the New Living Translation says, turn from your selfish ways. I don't know about you, but so often, I want to fulfill my own desires. Sometimes those are healthy and holy, and sometimes they're not. But Jesus asks us to turn from our ways and towards His ways. Now, my selfish ways want me to be recognized, want me to gain glory, but my kingdom ways, my Jesus-centered ways, want God to get the glory. They want to serve God. They want to help others succeed and thrive in their relationship with Jesus. And the more time I spend with God and the better I get to know Him, the more He adjusts my way of thinking and my heart in tune with His heart. And then when Jesus says, take up their cross, take up their cross. The apostles would have been acutely aware of the Roman cross. They had seen the Romans use this as a way of humiliating and punishing criminals. And not only would they be crucified on a cross, but they would have to drag their own cross, the instrument of their own death, to their death. And so when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me, that's the imagery that these apostles would have had. Jesus says, deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. He says, follow me. And quite honestly, I think that daily picking up for many of us is that cave time, right? It's spending that time with God, asking Him to shape and form our lives, asking Him to convict us of the areas that we're blowing it, encourage us in the areas that we're doing well, and to see things as He sees them, and to impact us for His kingdom. It's that daily cave time, being instructed by Him and guided by Him, seeking God's will, spending time in His words. But why would I want to deny myself and pick up my cross daily and follow Jesus? Verse 24 and 25 say this, For whomever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul or self? Uh, This past week, I was in Southern California near my hometown. I was dropping my son Kenny off at college, and I spent a couple of nights on my cousin's yacht in Newport Beach Harbor. Now, my cousin is not incredibly wealthy. That's just where he lives. But as I was in this area, I mean, the reality was there were million-dollar boats all around. There were homes that were worth multi-million dollars. There were Teslas and Mercedes and Maseratis and BMWs, uh, signs of luxury everywhere signs of worldly success. But as I sat on that boat gazing at what others had, the fruits of people's labor, I realized that life is far more than boats and homes and careers and toys. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. They just seem to be an obvious representation of some of the things that we might consider as gaining the world. But in reality... The reality is that you and I all have things that we chase, things that we put on a pedestal, things that make us, that that we make more important than following Jesus. 
You know, it might be the next great business win. It might be academic achievement. It might be athletic success. It might be the person we're dating. It might be the relationships we have. It could be our children or our grandchildren. And many of those things are important. And many of you are gifted at succeeding in those areas. But those are all temporary. There is nothing like deep, loving relationships, like doing things that have eternal implications, like things that change lives, things that heal relationships, things that serve those in need, things that further the kingdom of God and His purposes. Lose your life for Jesus and save your life. There is no better way. There is no more fulfilling way. And then verse 26 says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I was trying to get my, wrap my head around what it means to be ashamed of Jesus and His words. I think that being ashamed of Jesus could mean, and unfortunately I've been guilty of every one of these different things at times, it could mean following along with the crowd when you know the crowd is going astray. It could be not speaking up or speaking truth when you know something is wrong. It might be not extending an invite uh, to church or to life group or to some place where somebody who's far from God may be introduced to Jesus. Being ashamed also might mean refusing forgiveness. That can be a way of being ashamed of the gospel. Uh, perhaps it's our hesitation to share what God has done for us. And sometimes it's our hesitancy to bring God up or how the Bible speaks in to a situation. And reality is that the Bible speaks into almost every situation you'll ever run across in life. The thing about it is, though, Peter... Peter found himself in a situation where he was ashamed of Jesus. Now remember, at times, Jesus would warn his disciples of his imminent death. And it was Peter who said, no, Lord, never. No. And Jesus told Peter on the night that he was going to be betrayed that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. Then that very night, Peter was outside the area where Jesus was being questioned and beaten, and Peter was ashamed and scared to even admit that he knew Jesus. He was fearful for his life, and he denied even knowing him three times. This isn't up on the screen, but Luke 22, 61 and 62 says this, that when that happened, that third time, says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Can you imagine that moment in time? Like you swore your allegiance to Jesus. Like he was your king. You followed him for three years. And you swore, no matter what happens, I will have your back. I will be by your side. And yet, in this very moment, when Jesus has his greatest moment of need, when he is all alone being beaten, being questioned, Peter denies him three times, and then Jesus looks him straight in the eye. 
And I can just imagine the guilt and the shame and the regret and how awful Peter felt in that moment. Well, several weeks later, after guilt and shame and doubt and regret, uh, Jesus had resurrected. They had seen Jesus. And Peter, one night, says, hey, let's go out fishing to all the other disciples. Jesus is not around. They fish all night, and they don't catch anything. Then in the morning, they're only about 100 yards offshore, and they see a man on the coastline. And this guy says, hey, have you had any luck? Have you caught anything? And they say, no, we haven't caught anything. And so this guy says, well, throw your nets over to the other side. And they're like, well, what do we got to lose? They throw their nets over the other side, and they catch such a huge haul of fish, they can't even pull it into the boat. And moments later, Peter recognizes that that man standing on the shore is Jesus. And Peter doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps out and he swims to shore to be with Jesus because he loves him so much and because like, he just wants his forgiveness. And so Peter and Jesus end up having this meal over fish on this shoreline. And three times, three times, Jesus asked Peter the question, do you love me? And all three times, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Of course I love you. And it was as if, as if Jesus was forgiving Peter for each of those three times that he had denied him. And in that moment, Peter was restored. Well, over the years, Peter was transformed and a couple of months after denying Jesus three times, Peter's lowest point, where his guilt and his shame would have been awful, a couple months later, Peter was no longer ashamed of the gospel. The Holy Spirit came on him and the rest of the disciples at Pentecost, and there were thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem, and Peter goes out to speak to this huge gathering Yet this time there's no shame. And he boldly proclaims Jesus as Lord. He says, this Messiah that you crucified, he's the Savior. He's the one through whom salvation comes. And we read that because of the bold words that Peter shared that day, 3,000 people, 3,000 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a result of Peter being transformed by the love of God. You know, as we're transformed by the love of Jesus, our standard operating procedure becomes that of a Christ-born love. And one of the cool things about how God operates is that it looks different for all of us. Uh, some of you are wired to serve, some to speak, some to pray, some to offer compassion, some to bring order out of chaos, some to evangelize, some to lead, some to give, some to teach. And we're all called to become like Christ, and we're all called to make disciples. So spend time with God in the cave. Spend time with other Christ followers gathered around the table, living out what Jesus is teaching you every day on the road. Now, Philippians 1.6 says this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on 
to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's God who's begun this good work in you. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to be with him, but he's the one doing the work in you. He's the one transforming your heart, your mind, and your soul. We all have our part, but God does his part. We seek him, we seek his will, and we get to know him and his son and his love and his ways, and he continues to transform us. So I'd like to invite the worship team uh, back up, and I've got a, a little homework I want to share with you all. This is your mission, should you choose to take it, I think is how they said it, something of that nature. Uh, we frequently put this in a cave table road scenario. So here, in your cave time this week, ask this question, who am I becoming? And maybe is God asking me to follow Jesus differently in this season? Who am I becoming? And then for the table, uh, discuss Luke 9, 24 and 25. That is the passage that says this. Forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I would encourage you, whether you get on the phone with somebody, whether you go to coffee with somebody or as a small group, discuss this passage and ask other people like how they understand this and wrestle with it. And then on the road, uh, prayerfully consider talk to someone about those times when you are ashamed of Jesus in his words. When are you ashamed of Jesus in his words? What causes you hesitancy or your hesitancy and what would help you overcome being ashamed. Wrestle with those things. Now, I want to conclude by sharing this. We talked about the life of Peter, but what's not in the Bible, but history tells us, is how Peter died. Peter followed Jesus all the days of his life, and he was told to take up his cross daily and follow Jesus. Peter's death ultimately was a crucifixion. He was hung on a cross. But he felt so unworthy that he said, I cannot be hung on a cross like my Savior was. And he told them to hang him upside down. So Peter was crucified on a cross upside down. And he lived out this mission for his entire life and you could even say because of how Peter was transformed by Christ and what he did could be part of the very reason you're sitting in this room right now because he lived this thing out. So I just encourage you to adopt these rhythms. Let's pray together. Father, all too often, I think of the features and benefits of following you, which are absolutely awesome. To know that we've been forgiven, to know that our sin is as far as the east is from the west, to know that you will guide us and lead us. But there's also a cost of following you. You ask for an incredible commitment. And yet, as I know, there's nothing in this life that we do that, doesn't, uh, that gives us any sort of satisfaction that doesn't require some level of sacrifice on our part and some level of commitment. And yet you call us to the greatest commitment of all, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow you. 
And so for each of us, Lord, I pray that we would know that that's an invitation and that's a challenge and that you would do whatever you need to in our hearts, our minds, our souls so that we would take steps towards you and follow you and that we would become Christ-like. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.